Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. In his budget address last month, Governor Ned Lamont announced that legalizing recreational cannabis is a top priority. He proposed his own version of a legalization bill, and legislators in Hartford have already begun to debate. Many of the questions surrounding the bill center on equity and whether the state can legalize cannabis in a way that supports communities most harmed by punishment and enforcement. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Coming up, we'll hear from the governor's senior advisor and from the cannabis czar of Portland, Oregon. But first, two of Connecticut's recreational cannabis advocates are fighting to make sure equity drives legalization. Jason Ortiz is president of the Minority Cannabis Business Association, and Kiva Smith-Bolden is founder and CEO of Canna Health. It's the only Black-owned cannabis business in Connecticut. I asked Kiva why she thinks there are so few Black-owned cannabis businesses in Connecticut and around the country. Um, well, <laughs> um, the limitation is definitely on purpose. <laughs> you know, I think that the laws and the policies were put in place to make sure that certain elements of the population weren't a part of this burgeoning industry. I think they looked at it as a way, um, creating this industry as a way to um, make money for the people who already have been making money in America uh, to just help to get um, white males, corporate entities richer, as opposed to looking at the fact that they're actually changing a law and laws and policies that are being deemed racially motivated was the original reasons why like cannabis was made illegal. So we're, we're acknowledging that that we're changing the laws because there was real no there was no real reason for these for the for cannabis to be made illegal and it really was a way in which to criminalize the people who utilize the plant and so if if that is the reason for changing the laws now then those people who were criminalized, who were disenfranchised, who were um, made to live in poverty because of over-policing and having males and, and moms ripped from homes over a plant, those should be the very people who are made whole um, with the with the uh, creation of an industry. And so um, because that's not the mindset, because the mindset is monetary, not reconciliatory, um, it has created the usual suspects of people who are able to capitalize off of this. There's a few different elements. Yes, systems and policies are in place to keep people of color out, but then we as people of color lack the knowledge and information um, to pursue a lot of these uh, areas of industry and only think of it in a limited way. So part of my goal on a regular basis is to educate our community about opportunities that exist in this industry as owners creating um, creating 
creating entrepreneurs in this space and having people think outside of the box and not just about plant touching businesses where like growing it or actually selling it, but maybe transportation, maybe, you know, ancillary um, services and businesses like mine. It's a medical cannabis business. We don't touch the plant and it's considered an ancillary service because we are getting people their medical cannabis cards. Jason, let's talk about that change that is possible and that impetus for change. And Keeper just voiced something that I often hear when we're talking about policy reform, particularly in the area of criminal justice. And that is that the people who are closest to the problem, the closest to the challenge, should be the voices that are leading the path to reform. Because who knows that experience better than people who have been touched by it? And you are someone who has directly experienced the effects of criminalizing marijuana, that history that Kiber talked about, and that contemporary impact. Talk to our listeners about your experience and how that may have shaped the work that you do today. Yeah, unfortunately, I was the victim of the war on drugs when I was 16 in Norwich, Connecticut. Uh, <clears throat> you know, my parents had moved to Norwich, Connecticut from New York City, kind of leaving some of the anti-immigrant and anti-Puerto Rican sentiments, you know, that they experienced there uh, and getting good state jobs here in Connecticut. They were able to move to Norwich to work for the Norwich State Hospital at the time. Uh, but, but as a young, you know, Puerto Rican growing up in a very suburban, mostly white community, you know, it became very clear to me that certain communities were treated differently, even within Norwich. Uh, and I experienced it full force when I was arrested for simple possession uh, in high school. We were walking on the way to school, smoking cannabis, Somebody called the school and the security guards immediately, as soon as we stepped foot on campus, surrounded us, called in the police, had us arrested, had us brought to the police station, and I was expelled for school for the rest of the year. And so when you're 16, pulling somebody out of the school environment is probably one of the worst things you could ever do to a young person. That experience was both you know, traumatizing on the like, why do people feel the need to be so aggressive and mean to me about this plant? But then I learned some very important terminologies on the academic side, the war on drugs, the school to prison pipeline, and selective enforcement. And those three terms, I encourage everyone to Google them and, and understand their, their history, but would change my life forever. Uh, from there, I definitely became an activist to try to change laws so that those that came after me wouldn't have to suffer the same situation. Uh, but I was able to graduate I was eventually able to enroll at the University of Connecticut in stores, and I, I am a graduate, I am a uh, Husky alumni. And in that time, I met an organization called Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Uh, and this was a student-based organization that was trying to end the war on drugs and specifically change policies directed at youth. You know, I, I eventually joined the Minority Cannabis Business Association in order to draft our own laws. So the original purpose that I joined MCBA was to draft our model policy. And so that policy was drafted and funded 100% by people of color. It was the first cannabis policies that could make that claim. Uh, and we brought together 30 of the brightest minds of people of color in the industry to draft this policy. Uh, we've since had five policy summits and issued multiple policies. Um, but once we put ourselves in the driver's seat with pushing our own laws, rather than always having to fight against lackluster or insufficient laws, it really changed our ability to change the world. You both have 
made it clear that policy doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't just happen overnight, that it's always shaped by these battles over who gets to determine who the enemy is or what the problem is. And Kibra, we're now seeing some people addressing the equity concerns that you both have mentioned. And here in Connecticut, the governor has talked about creating an equity commission to ensure a more inclusive industry. Do you think that will help address the challenges that both you and Jason just mentioned? And if not, what else needs to be done to really put those voices front and center at the table? Well, I think that Equity Commission uh, will be integral to to ensuring that we do have a fair and equitable cannabis industry here in Connecticut. Um, However, I think most important and and what I'm really uh, waiting to see the results of is that equity study in which we look at the cost of inequity in the the world, in our our state, and and really look at how um, over-policing, criminalization, prison time, parole, probation, um, lack of access to... to, resources uh, has affected our community. And that equity study will really help to be our, I don't think we need proof, but it, it would be a way to justify, you know, and, and to, to, to help to highlight the need to have equity in cannabis here in Connecticut. And so I believe the study is going to be a great avenue to, in, to, to helping to make our case. Jason, there's a a lot of money that is allocated in this state to policing and to punishment. And that practice has led to this question about revenue surrounding the cannabis industry and where the revenue that is generated will go and who gets to determine that. In that lens that Kibra just talked about, about having the data to show the problem of not just action, but inaction, is this question of where revenue should go. What are your thoughts on this particular bill's approach to revenue? And how do you think we should be addressing this to really help the communities that you both uh, work with and support? So I think an important part of this is being able to quantify damage done to our communities and use that data to determine the most effective use of community investment funds. This is where, as Kira said, the study is really important because we're having this debate about racial segregation over policing, and a lot of it is very abstract and emotionally charged. However, the damage done to our communities was not abstract. It was financial, it was economic, and we can go back and use the incredible power of academia in Connecticut to actually put numbers on what that over-policing did to our communities. and so. Once we have real information and and real data set here to work with, the community investment part will become clearer as to how we do it. One type of community investment is not going to solve this problem. We need to have reentry services for those that are going to be released from prison. We need to have business startup funds for folks that want to get in the industry. And we need to invest directly in the places, the geographic locations that were over-policed. Those are all three very different types of programs that are all very much necessary. And what the quantification of the war on drugs will help us do is illuminate the scale of the damage done. I think one of the reasons we tend not to see these type of studies done is because we will be really upset at the level of damage that we inflicted on our own people. 
Uh, and so that's why it's really important that we begin the process of a post-war on our community's world with an honest assessment of the damage done. Just like if we were going into a place that was after a war had happened and we wanted to figure out how we were gonna rebuild, we would assess the damage done and input as much resources as is necessary to bring that community back to being whole and sufficient and successful. And so I just believe most people of color understand the scale of the problem, but most folks in decision-making positions in government uh, choose to understate it uh, in order to make the job of balancing budgets a little bit easier. But there is nothing easy about what has happened over the 100 years of racial oppression under the war on drugs. And so we have to continuously push back that the solutions will be easy or that the solutions and ending the war on drugs will be revenue neutral for the state. So the state of Connecticut has an obligation to put in resources to undo that damage separate from whatever we can raise in revenue directly from the cannabis industry, which could be significant if done correctly. I want to ask you both this question because it's coming up. You know, there are all these questions or concerns that people have about the current legalization bill in Connecticut. And for some, there is the concern that if we don't do this now, it may never get done or it will continue the harm that you both have mentioned and exacerbate the inequities that you both address. So I want to ask you both, we'll start with you, Jason. Do you think it, it is best to legalize now and deal with these other challenges down the road? Or do you think we should wait until we have a bill that is firmly centering equity and access? Well, I think we're fortunate in Connecticut that we don't have to make that choice because we already have a bill that is centered on equity and access that was put forward by State Representative Robin Porter through the Labor Committee, HB 6377. And it does center equity, it centers labor rights, it centers empowering our Native tribes, it, produce, it has home grow in it, and has everything that equity activists and folks outside the cannabis uh, industry and sphere would like to see from a legalization bill. So I do think we're at a point now where not only do we have to put the, the lies and propaganda aside as far as specifically in the marijuana industry, but we also have some false binaries around how policies can be pushed or which policies exist that we also need to talk about. This is racism and power dynamics playing out, not just in the specifics of the policy, but who's even recognized as having the ability to decide this. And I think it is really important that as we move forward, people of color are the only ones that have the experience or credibility to define what are sufficient equity programs. There is no way that the current bill that is led by folks that do not understand the impact of the war should be able to determine how much healing is good enough. And so right now I want it to be 100% clear that our choice is not do nothing or a bad bill. Our choice is between doing the right thing and supporting Robin Porter or throwing our hands up because law is complicated, right? And right now, Robin Porter and the other women of color in the caucus that there are actually 19 co-sponsors on her bill, many of them people of color, many of them white folks from suburban districts, all of those folks fully understand we have the ability to pass this bill this year. We have the language that would actually put forward an equitable industry and we have the support of the public. So it is important that folks don't get distracted by false choices and instead focus on who is leading the charge from our communities, who's really centering the voices and needs of our communities and support them. 
uh, because we're in this situation right now where there's a few months left in the legislative session. This bill will be moved out of committee and be possibly up for a vote. And we can combine the two bills, but I would like to see us start from a framework that centers equity at its core and then add on to other protections from there. Uh, a good friend of mine, Richard Huang from Massachusetts reviewed SB 888, the governor's bill. And he said, it's very clear that they're coming at this with two priorities, revenue and fear. If you look at their bill, it's about how much money are we gonna generate and how do we protect our communities from these dangerous, dangerous cannabis users? And if you look at Robin Porter's bill, it's very clear what she's trying to do, reparations and economic empowerment. And if you look at her bill, it's very clear. We're talking about job training for people that have adverse criminal histories. We're talking about priorities for people of color to be able to get licensing and businesses off the ground and making sure that the community investment dollars actually go to programs that advance the cause of equity and don't just disappear into the general fund or as the governor likes to do into pilot funds. And so I just think it's really important moving forward that we're critical of the framing put forward by those who created the problem, that they're the only ones that can solve it. I don't think that makes sense for us. And I actually just don't think we're in that position at all. Kibra, I want to make it clear for our listeners that while Robin Porter has put forth a bill that would address all of these concerns and do it in a more holistic way, as opposed to just seeing cannabis as this separate issue, the bill that is being seriously considered by some in leadership right now, the governor's version of that bill, does not address many of those same notions. So while we have policy alternatives, it is still an issue of who gets to set the agenda, as Jason mentioned, and who are the voices doing that? What are your thoughts then on the governor's version of the bill? Would you rather see that bill move forward so we get traction? Or would you say, let's wait on that and instead do something different? As I said in the beginning of our conversation, why are we putting these policies in place, right? It, 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 we should start with that. And the reason is because cannabis prohibition happened for all the wrong reasons, racially motivated. They wanted to, you know, all these things. So we're changing the laws and everything that happened between the time prohibition was put in place to when these laws get changed, there has to be some some correction of that. Something has to happen. You can't just do what you did to communities of color for over a hundred years and not expect to have to pay for it, not expect to have to put some put some things in place to prevent it from happening again, and not expect to have to then address the people who were harmed and helping them get back on their feet. And so I believe that the governor, his team, legislators, they all realized this, that cannabis was made illegal for the wrong reason. They will acknowledge the harm done to our community. And if we lead with that, then we then and if they really engage in that thought process, then then the, they would not even have come up with this kind of stuff. So it's like we need to re-educate, re-point, like point this out and make sure that, that we know that there aren't any gray areas anymore. Either you are supporting bills, policies, laws, writing them that uphold white supremacy, or you are supporting bills, policies, and laws that help to 
create equity because of all the wrong that the white supremacy policies have created in our communities for, for years. And, and so, of course, no, <laughs> I am not for the governor's bill. It doesn't go far enough. It doesn't address the harm. It still creates criminals um, within my community um, based on the way in which the laws, the, the bill is written. And I do believe that there is an opportunity to have a conversation to be able to work together, though. So I, I, I think once we get to the table and, and we really acknowledge the fact that our communities have been just ravaged by the war on drugs and and this is an opportunity to make it right. I do think that there's a we will be able to come up with a bill that is integrative, that has all of Robin's elements. And, you know, some of the things from some, yeah, there's some good things in the governor's bill. He had a couple of things, but, you know, that that's really my feeling. I, I can't get off of that. Like, I really think that instead of just acknowledging it, what I found so interesting about white supremacy is that they can look the truth right in the face, <laughs> you know, have all of the information, but because it doesn't serve them, just totally ignore it. And I, and I don't think that our government, I'm, I'm hopeful that the people in our government aren't, aren't going to be that willfully ignorant, you know, and, and continue in that way. Jason Ortiz is president of the Minority Cannabis Business Association, and Kiebra Smith-Bolden is the founder and CEO of Canna Health. Jason and Kiebra, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, the governor's senior advisor talks about approaching equity in their plan. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're examining the role of equity in the fight to legalize recreational marijuana in Connecticut. In the last segment, we heard some criticisms of the governor's plan, that it doesn't do enough for the communities impacted by the war on drugs. Jonathan Harris is senior advisor to Governor Ned Lamont, and he joins us now to dive deeper into what's in the governor's plan for legalization. I asked Harris to respond to the concerns that the bill focuses too much on revenue and not enough on equity. Yeah, it really is not about the revenue. The revenue uh, is something on the back end that can help address some of the injustices uh, and also prevention and recovery. Uh, But it, it really is just a recognition that the prohibition on cannabis has failed and we need a, a new approach to protect uh, the public health and safety. Um, the war did little to protect public health and safety. Instead, it caused significant injustices for many residents, especially people in black and brown communities. Uh, cannabis is already legal or soon to be legal in the states around us. So it's here. And so to get rid of that black market, to be able to erase and heal those injustices and the disproportionate impact of the war on drugs on certain communities, uh, it's time to legalize. And we want to do so in a way that creates a fully and well-regulated market, similar to what we've done successfully and nationally recognized in the medicinal marijuana uh, space. You were the commissioner of the the state's Department of Consumer Protection when Connecticut legalized medical marijuana. What are the lessons that you learned from that experience that now carry over into 
making sure that as we legalize recreational marijuana, we're learning from those challenges or perhaps implementing what worked well? Yeah, well, we do know a great deal now between our medical program, uh, bills that have happened in the past, and what we've seen in other states across the country, uh, what works, what doesn't work, as we say, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So uh, the importance, the key here is a secure, well-regulated market that controls growing, that tests product, that labels product, that keeps it away from children, uh, that's sold in a safe manner. So that those are the highlights of it. I would say we've also learned from other states and because of our medical market that we need to do more on the equity side. That you can't that not, that just won't happen because of needs for access to capital, uh, because of technical assistance that people need to go into cannabis and other types of business. And so we need to have a much more concerted effort back looking at our medical program and making changes there and looking forward to the adult use market to ensure that we have equity and that we we do redress those grievances, those injustices of the past. What is the state then prepared to do to address those grievances, to ensure access, to ensure that licensing doesn't just privilege those who already have access to capital or already have a connection to those kinds of markets? Right. Well, you know, the governor's bill actually sets out a lot of markers and structure for that. We realized as, you know, we were all fairly small staff, uh, very small immersed in, in the day-to-day, day-to-day battle against COVID. We woke up in the fall and said, you know, we really wanted to have SB 16, the adult use bill passed last year, which created an equity commission to have these important discussions. And so the governor asked us to put together a discussion group, which we did met November through January, a cannabis equity discussion group to, to flesh out these issues. We knew based on the timing that was gonna be difficult to get a lot of specific proposals into a bill. And that's because in the executive branch, we're not only creating the bill, but we're also creating a budget, which as you know, is required to be balanced. That budget gets put to bed sometime in the second half of January. We didn't get our recommendations even from this group until the latter half, but we wanted to put in markers uh, in the bill to show that we were committed to, to equity. So there is an equity commission that's established to drill down on some of these issues. One piece that we were able to reach consensus with early is that while there were different ideas about how to identify uh, the various communities that needed to have a a hand up, um, we needed to have a social equity study like Los Angeles, Massachusetts, and other jurisdictions have done. I think Maryland uh, just did one recently too, to be able to drill down on that, we got seventy-five thousand dollars in the budget to be able to uh, to fund that. We're working on starting that up sooner rather than later. Um, of course, there's equity in this bill too because we have erasure of cannabis convictions uh, for uh, possession, uh, which is which is important. Um, there's money actually in the budget that we had or would be bonding uh, to fund that erasure, two million dollars to fund the erasure. Uh, and, um, you know, I think we've begun, uh, we're continuing this discussion 
not begun, uh, that will allow us to drill down on that. There will be more language, I think, that comes out from the Judiciary Committee, that substitute language, that lays down more markers, more tangible project uh, progress towards equity. And then uh, there will be the negotiations over this bill and another bill and, and other ideas that are out there, which people have called conflicting. Uh, they've called competing. I view them as complementary because none of the bills has this fully regulated market that takes into account public health and safety, traffic safety, uh, protections for children, uh, the taxation piece of it. Um, none of them has that, but they, there are others that have some very good equity ideas. And it's up to us to continue that discussion and, and come up with a bill that merges these ideas. In the governor's budget address, he estimated that the state could bring in more than $100 million in tax revenue in the first five years. Where would the those funds go in terms of how the bill sets out to allocate the revenue that would be generated? I'm glad you raised that because that's another piece of equity and an equity marker. Uh, right now, the way the bill has it is that 50% of the revenues would go to uh, distressed municipalities. So we need to work, one, on that percentage, and we're talking to advocates about that, and two, where that money goes. There's two pieces to equity. There's, there's sort of the front-end equity, right? Who gets licenses? Are there equity applicants that should have a thumb on the scale, if you will, help, whether it's access to capital, technical assistance, to get into this space? Uh, we, we do have support for that. I would tell you that the governor thinks, though, that on the front-end equity, that the communities that have been most uh, widely impacted by the disproportionate um, enforcement of cannabis prohibition um, should not only have help to enter a cannabis business, but if they wanna open a corner store, they should be able to have that type of access to capital and technical assistance to go in other types of business too. And then there's a wide support for what we call back-end equity, which is what you were getting to. And that is what you do with the revenue from cannabis and how you use that to provide funds for access to capital, to set up programs for technical training and assistance um, and and how you use that. Right now it's 50% that goes to distressed municipalities and it's sort of generic in that way. I think the goal would be that that number will probably expand in a percentage. uh, And we'd also make some more specific direction of that revenue towards some of the things I just spoke about to help people that have been disproportionately impacted. In the past, the governor has been very open to public-private partnerships to address some of the state's biggest problems. I'm thinking in terms of education, but you mentioned access to capital, being able to become an entrepreneur in the state and generate wealth, not just for yourself as an individual, but for family and community. Given the disparities in access in the cannabis industry, is a public-private partnership something the governor is considering? I think the governor would consider that and all other options to be able to provide the most efficient and effective way to get people access to capital to create a cannabis business or to enter any other type of uh, business. I'll also say that another marker of equity in the bill is there's eight license types and three of them we've had, we put in that automatically have lower barriers to entry. Delivery, uh, a micro cultivator business, and food and beverage manufacturer. So those are already, it's not like it takes nothing to get into those spaces. 
uh, you need capital and you need some training, but it is much uh, lower barrier to entry than say opening a, a, a cultivation facility. You mentioned earlier in our conversation, COVID-19. And one of the lessons that we've learned from COVID-19 in Connecticut is that access is marked by all of these things, such as race, such as where people live uh, in terms of how they engage. So whether we were talking about access to testing or access to vaccines or access to support for small businesses, given that backdrop, Jonathan, what do you say to people of the state from underrepresented communities who say, I don't trust that this will be done well or done in a way that actually helps those communities and doesn't just further what many people see as a gap within our state between those who have and those who do not? Well, at the end of the day, the proof will be in the pudding. I mean, the commitment is there in the bill. The commitment is there to have further discussions. The commitment was indicated by the governor convening the group before a bill even came out so we could have these discussions in advance of the heat of the legislative session and that chaotic period. Um, But at the end of the day, we're going to have to produce a bill that has specific uh, provisions in it that get to the equity issue. Um, You know, I think, again, that disparity study, that social equity study, done by an independent third party and committing 75,000 to that. That's another indicator that this is a serious matter and that we want to do it right. I will tell you though, I think no matter how we do it in the front end, there's gonna have to be adjustments. I think like most other jurisdictions, there's not just one disparity or one equity study that sets the baseline, but you have to keep fine tuning it and doing more. In Los Angeles, for example, they targeted certain funds and programs by zip code and then realized that those zip codes were too big and they had to focus on census tracts and be a little bit more uh, focused on how they delivered those equity services, those equity benefits and and made it real. So I think there's always gonna have to be adjustments going forward. Jonathan Harris is senior advisor to Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Coming up, We'll hear from the Cannabis Program Supervisor in Portland, Oregon. She shares lessons that she hopes Connecticut will take from the missteps in her own state in legalizing cannabis. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we're talking about issues of equity around legalizing cannabis. Dashita Dawson is the Cannabis Program Supervisor for the City of Portland, Oregon. Oregon legalized cannabis back in 2015. Equity is at the forefront of her job, where she works on regulating and licensing cannabis businesses with the goal of creating an inclusive marijuana industry. Dashita Dawson joins us now. She's also the author of How to Succeed in the Cannabis Industry. Dashita, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you, Kalila. Thank you for having me. Connecticut is one of a handful of states that's now considering legalizing recreational marijuana. And Oregon did that back in 2015. What are the lessons from Oregon's experience that you think people in Connecticut should be paying attention to? 
That's a great question. Um, I've actually been testifying about Oregon's leadership in the market in terms of looking at um, sensible regulation and equitable market. They've been talking about it since 2015, despite, to be perfectly honest, not really understanding how to implement it necessarily. But it is the first um, state to really recognize that cannabis legalization should be an open market, um, should not be a forced competitive market. That in and of itself can be an equity issue. Um, and it is also the first state to recognize that um, regulation needed to be sensible and not based in uh, some of the stigmas of the past. Um, but at the same time, it also did not establish a true cannabis equity framework. And so that's some of the exciting things that I get to work on now and I have been working on since I started in this role last year. You know, equity is this buzzword that we hear in lots of different settings. And we're hearing it a lot within the recreational legalization debate here in Connecticut. What does equity look like for you in your role as a program supervisor? Well, I have to kind of take it a little bit larger than <clears throat> just my role as a supervisor. I'm a Black woman that grew up in East New York, Brooklyn, um, fully understanding how the racially biased enforcement of cannabis prohibition impacted communities of color, specifically Black, Indigenous, and Latinx communities, and how the collateral damages of a cannabis arrest and or conviction really impacted our families and the disinvestment in our communities. So when I think of equity, I think of it in a much larger sense than the way folks have been talking about it um, as it pertains to just getting a license in the industry. It's a lot bigger than that. We need to repair and restore communities that have been disinvested as a result of over-policing um, for decades. And this is across the country and Oregon is no different than New York, than Connecticut. But in my role, I've been able to innovate and um, have given been given a runway to create um, policies and regulation that actually delivers on the reparative and restorative uh, potential of the cannabis legalization movement. Um, by that, I mean specifically the cannabis tax revenue, which is a new revenue stream for all the states that have legalized and in fact has been doing really well um, despite COVID. And um, my city is the first uh, in the country to have a cannabis uh, grant fund tied to cannabis tax revenue. And so I get to, in addition to doing the regulatory aspect aspects of licensing and compliance. I also work on this type of equity initiative for the city and help lead the state on um, implementation um, overall. Let's talk more about that revenue question because that is a big concern here in Connecticut, where the revenue will go, how it will be used, and whether it will help the communities that actually need that sort of infusion of uh, structural changes to be able to do that. Talk to us about where the revenue goes in Oregon and if any challenges have been raised about getting that revenue to communities in need. Absolutely. So the cannabis tax revenue for any jurisdiction, the state level and the city level is brand new revenue. Um, and while there are some decreases in revenue that happen with enforcement related revenue or criminal fines, we found that the cannabis tax revenue far exceeds what um, we would expect um, to pay for those type of, I put in air quote services because it's actually a bit of a uh, you know, social justice um, issue 
with how enforcement is, but it does make money for most jurisdictions. So they've been able to replace that. However, in most um, legalized states, they only seen equity as maybe giving some reduced fee for licenses and or uh, prioritized um, uh, licensing and or extra points. And in our city, we voted in 2016 um, through a ballot initiative for the cannabis tax revenue to be invested back into the communities most harmed by racially biased enforcement of cannabis criminalization or what folks like to call the war on drugs. And so we have a 3% local tax that goes back into the communities, but it, it hasn't been all perfect. Up until last year, May 2020, when the world really changed its perspective on what racial equity conversations should be we should be having, 80% um, of this cannabis tax revenue, even in the city of Portland, was still going to public safety, i.e. the police bureau. And in June 2020, our city uh, council in Portland decided to um, uh, disinvest from uh, the police bureau and move those uh, funds from the cannabis tax revenue into the community. And they're doing so by um, you know, providing an ongoing $1 million into a program that I've called the Social Equity and Educational Development or SEED initiatives. And this program um, is really a vehicle for monitoring, measuring, and reporting on this cannabis tax revenues, what I call return on equity investment. And it does provide our seed grant fund where we are able to um, prioritize BIPOC and women-owned small business initiatives and projects that support economic and educational development for Black, Indigenous, and Latinx communities specifically. There is somewhat of a generational divide in some communities, particularly communities who have been harmed by this irrational war on drugs about whether this will produce the kinds of changes that are needed to really reform our approach to community investment. And you wrote an op-ed back in 2018 for Green Entrepreneur, and the title is, This is Non-Negotiable, Cannabis Legalization Must Include Restorative Justice. Dashita, why center restorative justice here? And also, what are those things that we need to do within the, the framework of legalizing recreational marijuana to really make that have an impact on people's everyday lives? Wow, I wrote that back in 2018 and I'm so excited to actually be able to implement that in a jurisdiction like the city of Portland. Well, what I will say is that restorative justice is required here because when we look at the history of cannabis prohibition, um, there's an ACLU report uh, that was just released in 2020. It's called A Tale of Two Countries. And it talks very specifically about the racial disparities in arrests. Um, New York has been uh, the state that has arrested more people in the country as it pertains to cannabis possession. And so the biggest um, intergenerational um, Mistake is believing that cannabis arrests are related to distribution. And in fact, it isn't, it's possession. So we're talking about everyday people um, who are consuming or you know, are, are consumers. Um, and when we look deeper, we found that many states on average were at a 3.4 times more likelihood to arrest a black person for cannabis possession um, as compared to white counterparts, despite equal amounts of cannabis consumption. In fact, some data shows that is actually um, white communities that consume a bit more. 
Um, and in Oregon, what we found is even with legalization, racial disparities in police enforcement still exist. I ran a report last year in the beginning of the year. Um, and while the city has 6% or the state, sorry, of Oregon has 6% of a black population, black people are nearly 20% of the traffic stops. So we're, we're getting, you know, uh, profiled and targeted, um, even in just doing everyday things like driving. So it's not about, um, cannabis specifically. That was just a tool used um, uh, for uh, perpetuating systemic racism for the last 80 years in this country. And so if we talk about social justice, if we talk about prison reform, if we talk about mass incarceration, we cannot have that conversation without talking about cannabis prohibition. And so that's why I feel like it's a non-negotiable. If we're going to make this legal to the point where states and the federal government are able to capitalize um, um, literally capitalized as far as revenue is concerned, we must do the work to repair the communities that have been destroyed as a result of its um, prohibition. And we have so much data that shows that it was racially biased in intent from the beginning. Um, uh, you know, Nixon has gone on the record to say, yeah, we actually used cannabis prohibition as a way to go after these communities specifically uh, during the height of our um, first major civil rights movement. Some would say 2020 was the next one, but at the height of it, um, that is what was used to bring down things, uh, organizations like the Black Panthers um, or the Nation of Islam. Um, and it was also used to infiltrate um, these organizations. Interestingly enough, these tactics have not changed in 2020. The DEA was actually given an opportunity in 2020 to be legally able to serve, uh, provide surveillance over folks who were at uh, at our uh, protests. And I'm like, well, what does a drug enforcement agency need to sur do surveillance on protesters? And it's because they know that if, again, drugs are in any way involved, that becomes a license for um, violating civil rights and um, disrupting movements in the way that it has been in the past. So again, I, I think this is a non-negotiable because we have enough data, history, proof that the government has used this to wield against our communities. And we absolutely need to demand that any benefit needs to be first provided to our communities. As more and more states take up this question of legalization, as the federal government indicates that it is willing to have these conversations in ways that it was not before, what are the trends or the issues that you're watching unfold perhaps over the next five years? I think we're still struggling with being very declarative about what cannabis equity is. I think a lot of well-meaning BIPOC legislators are selling the farm without knowing the value of the farm. And um, what we're finding is that not everyone is as educated on the issues um, around what cannabis equity really looks like. They're focused on how many licenses are owned by um, BIPOC or specifically Black operators. And that's an important part of the, uh, of the equation because we certainly should be part of building this multi-billion dollar industry. But there is a little bit of um, you know, sort of a miss on not understanding what this cannabis tax revenue needs to be doing. Um, and having those discussions in legislation around 
the allocation. Um, we're, we're, we're having a lot of discussion at the federal level of what percentage of the cannabis tax revenue needs to automatically be um, redirected and focused specifically on Black, Indigenous, and Latinx populations. Another um, key issue is this race-neutral language that we see everywhere. Uh, what we found, again, is that it really has not been as successful as um, we'd like it to be. Um, most have been proven ineffective. A resident of a disproportionately impacted area or opportunity zone really is ineffective due to gentrification and housing instability. We found in LA that there were only 18 out of the 100 people who qualified for equity license that were Black as a result of this. Oftentimes, we use low and average median income, and that's also proven ineffective because it doesn't accurately reflect the racial disparity in wealth. Um, some of the numbers, when you couple cannabis prohibition being racially biased with um, housing discrimination, um, you, the, the gap across all of the income brackets is still very staggering and can't be made up by, you know, just kind of circling low income. Plus, we realize that low income white people are actually still uh, more likely to get traditional funding um, than Black or Indigenous or Latinx counterparts. Um, and so that's a big conversation. And that's sort of why I'm very excited about the House bill in Oregon, Oregon Cannabis Equity Act, because we call out in the legislation Black, Indigenous, and Latinx. And we are asking for that in the MORE Act at the federal level as well, versus the race neutral, which we've you know seen in the last five, 10, some will say 25 years, if we're including California, it has not worked to diversify the industry. And it has not worked to ensure that the communities that have been most harmed uh, and the data that shows it um, is really being followed. Tashita Dawson is the Cannabis Program Supervisor for the City of Portland, Oregon. She's also the author of How to Succeed in the Cannabis Industry. Tashita, thank you so much. Thank you again for having me. Disrupted is produced by Katie Tularski and Anna Elizabeth. Our intern is Shekinah Collier. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.